This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Jonathan Green. You're listening to Lost and Found. And today, we're going to the largest coral reef in the world. The Great Barrier Reef, one of the seven wonders of our natural world. It stretches over 3,000 kilometres. This is Gurang country, Gurang Gurang country, Jia, Juru, Banjan, Giramai, Torres Strait. 45 indigenous groups span the length of the reef. Above, white sand, startlingly blue water. Below, a pulsing ecosystem, 1,500 species of tropical fish, dolphins, dugongs, stingray, turtles. The reef is also the breeding place of the humpback whale, great creatures that have made their way from the Antarctic. My name is Trisma Blackman Costello. I'm a Gurang, 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 Yirinji, Merimer woman with salt water through our veins, especially the southern part of the Great Barrier for Nyumer to Gurang people. Yeah, being to people around Cairns uh, country on my maternal line, my mother's line, and also Merimer, Murray Island. This is a Yidinji story, so I have permission to tell this story through my mum's bloodlines, my mum herself and elders of the Yidinji area around in, in the Cairns regions. For the Yidinji people, it comes down the law of there were two brothers and one of the brothers is up on the boundary where we meet the Irukandji people on the Barren River, that's the northern boundary of Yidinji people around Cairns. And Damari and Guyala, they are the two brothers. They were the head hunter and gatherers in the Yidinji tribe. So one particular day, they broke the law. They hunted a sacred fish, which they weren't supposed to hunt. And when they come back on shore and the tribe knew that there was great wrath that was going to occur from Beryl or the creator, um, because that law had been broken. Great wrath did come from Beryl, the creator, and um, this is from the landscapes that we know as volcanic, and this in turn was a great occurrence along the eastern coastline, and it makes up what we know now as Yerbing, or Nyuma, the Great Barrier Reef. And it's very significant to Aboriginal people in that our bloodlines and the saltwater dreaming lines, which come from crocodile people, Kororek people of the Torres Strait, as well as the Mer people of Murray Island, that's the most, most northern point of New Mer, attaches to all of these living and existing real fish and uh, gural and all of the coral and reef in these ecosystems. I hitchhiked up to uh, Heron Island, the Southern Great Barrier Reef. Charlie Varon, marine scientist. And uh, I was a youngster and I was just gobsmacked. I fell in love with the place. I'd never seen anything so beautiful, so active, so oh, a bit of everything dangerous. Um, everything was there. And I thought, this is life. This is, this is it. This is home. Yeah, this is where I ever wanted to be. There's reefs all over the world and I've worked on almost all of them. Hmm. But uh, the Great Barrier Reef stands out for me as um, 
an ultra special place there's nothing like it on the planet and so it's um is that just because of yeah. size extent i mean what what's what's unique about it uh size certainly it's a bit bigger than italy so it's it's big <laughs> and uh, yes, it's, that's an interesting uh, comparison yeah it is and um but it's also it's completely different one place to another to another it's all very different like like a mountain ranges and deserts and whatever It's just like gliding down weightlessly over a coral reef through the water. I know it's a it's a such a well-known piece, mm. but it does portray the environment of of a coral reef better than anything. It's I'm, peaceful. I'm not sure it's if lovely. the record it's, shows that Vivaldi had scuba expertise, but we'll, we'll no. We'll. I think he slipped up on that one, <laughs> and I don't think he would have taken his violin with him. But anyhow, he'll <laughs> have to move on. I wasn't really expecting much, to tell you the truth. Anna Crean, journalist, writer, author of The Long Goodbye. Just because I think it's best not to expect anything. (laughs) 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 I don't know what that says about me. But, um, you know, we left Townsville on a boat and then sort of two hours into the water. I do remember standing up and sort of doing that Elaine from Seinfeld slap um, to the skipper going, what is that? Because uh, I just hadn't, I just didn't expect to see what I saw, which was these sort of luminous, sort of shimmering patches of gold and sort of egg white, eggshell blue and turquoise just coming out of this dark blue water. And yeah, that was, I was kind of astonished to tell you the truth. And I quickly ran down to join the others and put like the daggy stinger suit on and flopped out into the water. And it was uh, beautiful sounds ridiculous because, you know, it's an overused word, mm. but it was unexpected because uh, you read all the children's books to your kids about it and you just get this idea that the palette is... Um, you know, just this sort of almost fluorescent palette. But the colours were, they were sort of almost autumnal. Um, they were sort of like these mustard yellows and these deep velvet reds. Um, and there were sort of bright purples and pulsing pinks as well. Uh, but, yeah, it was just such an interesting sort of sort of sensation of like, textures that look soft and hard and brittle and different colours and then these sweeping shoals of fish that kind of you could just move your fingers a tiny bit and they'll they'll flinch and shimmer away and it's my favourite were the clams these huge shells with these fat rippled lips and if you just wiggled your fingers near them the lips would sort of um they'd sort of tighten um and little almost sort of glow, these lines would glow in the lips a bit more. I had no expectations and I came away sort of breathless.
My daughter, actually, she would have been about four or five at the time. Graham Redfern, journalist and writer. As we were setting off on this little holiday and we're waiting to get the boat in Gladstone and she she's talking about finding Nemo and will we see Nemo? And I, I said, darling, it's going to be great, but, you know, we, we won't see, <laughs> we, we will not see Nemo. And then we, we get out to Heron Island and kind of day one, and they give the kids these big tubes with a glass bottom that you can kind of chuck under the water so you can see some of the shallow corals. And the first thing she saw was this anemone fish, exactly like Nemo. And she looked at me and, and all my credibility just disappeared almost immediately. But it was, it was awesome. Nothing else, Anna. It, it's a wonderful accumulation of life. Yeah, be kind of a spectacular, almost dazzling sort of a feast in a way for the eyes. And we were—I do remember—we were meant to keep our eyes on the boat, and we had were given partners to snorkel with, and we sort of were doing that. And then we were all like, "Now, nah, who cares?" And we just kept snorkeling. And we did get in a little bit of trouble when we got back on the boat because we didn't you know, follow the rules. But it was just, you know, I'd never floated over something so fascinating. It was like being allowed to float on top of an incredible painting. Um, and then the painting comes to life and sort of swirls around you. Night swimming deserves a quiet night. I love diving alone. I, um, I know that breaks rule number one. But um, I think the most beautiful diving I've ever done is on the outer face of the Northern Great Barrier Reef. At night, everyone's gone to bed, I've marked the spot. I go down on a moonlit night, turn the torch off, and the whole place is, is grey and silver and very much alive. Everything is crawling around everywhere. Big fish, sharks all come in, and it is the most spectacularly beautiful place I've ever been in. I love doing that. <laughs> People say that you're mad to do that because what happens, something goes wrong, no one knows you're there. But you've got to be alone, you've got to be, and it's not for me very dangerous at all. I, I know what I'm doing, and uh, that is for me. You can never photograph it. To us, it's very significant to understand the law of the land, the water and the air. Charisma Blackman Costello, Gurang Gurang woman, manager of Nagadu Cultural Heritage Tours. And all living things within these ecosystems, it's our responsibility and it's our job to ensure that future generations have, I suppose, all the resources to continue to practice the law and the customs and traditions over our land, sea, um, particularly us saltwater people uh, on the coastal um, what I suppose common society knows is the Great Barrier Reef. For us, it's a balance because um, we come from freshwater as well. We know that all the estuaries and breeding grounds, especially of most of our crustacean beings, um, our tucker is usually around the breeding grounds and the wetlands. Uh, so this is the saltwater and the freshwater um, being as one there. And we have the Irukandji uh, jellyfish that breeds in the 
fresh water. And then especially times through October to May on the Gregorian calendar, we're told that we, by law, we cannot go in the waters at these times because uh, the sharks are savage in the sea, as well as um, our people have the indicators on the land and coastal fringes, which indicate to us when is the right time. And also with our elders of the sea, our whales, my husband's mob and um, my family down in Kwandamuka on Stradbroke Island, Manjirabar, have a name for the whales and the welcoming of the whales is something that has been proliferant in this whole amazing Southern Cross region where from Antarctica right through to all of our coastal areas, they all have a particular time of year where the great elders of the sea begin their great migration and all the other animals within that ecosystems. And they also understand that, you know, there is other animals coming through uh, just like the Dungal or the Dugong, they start around um, the Kwandamuka regions and go up around northern Australia, around down south of Broome. And these migration patterns and and that of our living tucker indicates to us through our law and custom that, you know, we are very, very vigilant when it comes to the take on um, our tucker. Why, Charlie? Did, did why did corals evolve? Do you think where where do they where do they fit with all their well, extraordinary variety into the into the scheme of things? Well, if you think about it, um, coral reefs grow where land, sea, and air all interface together, and nothing else can go there. It's uh, a very violent place when there's a storm. Nothing quite as violent as a coral reef, and only corals can can exist in that sort of environment. The only things that have ever existed in that sort of environment. Mm. Uh, so it's uh, around the tropical world and it's a place where nothing else survives. And pretty to it, us, but there must be a practical purpose to that. Well, the corals build, build their homes out of, out of limestone. So it's a forest of limestone trees, if you like, mm. and they harness the sun's energy to do that. Uh, they've got to get lots of energy and they've got unlimited um, resources, that is cement, calcium carbonate from the water, and they build these, these trees which everything else lives in. So corals provide homes for just a huge proportion of the world's species. Some of these big um, parietes corals, like these massive brain corals, that that you know when you when you when you dive on them and you float above them, they're kind of five or six times your hand span. Some of them, some of the really big ones. Graham Redfern. I mean, they they are hundreds of years old, um, and and they have uh, bleached and probably died. Funnily enough, those really old corals, those old parietes corals, are the ones that the scientists use to work out how quickly corals are growing. That they they work in the same way as tree rings. You know, they'll drill a core through them and 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 analyze the bands. So they can they can tell the what they they call it the calcification rates uh, for those really big corals. So you've got you know you you've got corals there that are hundreds of years old that have died in in sort of recent bleaching events, and you know it, it's a system that that Queensland has run a multi-billion-dollar tourism industry off 
for decades on end. And that's one of the big question marks, aside from this sort of the moral weight that we have on ourselves to, to know that our custodianship has led it to a point where it's in real peril. And, mm. you know, there's questions that you have to ask yourself about how that happened. But, the, you know, its economic uh, contribution to Australia is, is enormous. If you're caught in a current out on the reef, you're in a, you're a very, very long way from anywhere else. Mm. And so um, I'm lucky to be alive several times. I'm like a cat. I think I've run out of lives, but um, uh, it, it, it is a dangerous place. And if you're going to very remote parts that are very unknown, and I've done just that. How do you get into trouble? I mean, what, what sort of circumstance? Uh, going to a place where you get caught in down a channel with a very strong current and suddenly... Uh, is spewed out into the big, wide coral sea. And when that happens, one place I've been to, the actual bubbles from my regulator went down and not up. In other words, the current was going down so strongly, it dragged the air bubbles down. Wow. Uh, Wow, that's what I thought. And teeming teeming with sharks, very, very clear water, and literally hundreds of sharks. And so you're alone in this very, um, well, a very dangerous place. And so... But that doesn't often happen. Would you mind going out in that way, though? Would you know? Would that would that be? People say he he died doing what he loved. <laughs> That's the plan, actually. Yeah, you've, you've <laughs> tell me it. more. My wife won't let me buy a little boat um, because she says I'll just do it. Um, that would be lovely um, to keep on going down, down, down the face of a of a of an outer reef where you plunge into 4,000 metres of water. Mm. I would see the corals change as they went down. I would get down deeper than I've ever been before. And then I'd be all very happy because I'd be narcotized with the, uh, that happens, under pressure, and then blissful sleep. You're listening to Lost and Found on Radio National. I'm Jonathan Green. We're exploring... Yes, the Great Barrier Reef. That place on the reef where you would like to take that plunge into the depths of the Coral Sea is your your final dive. Yeah. Whereabouts would that be? Well, it doesn't really matter. But the outer face of the northern Great Barrier Reef, uh, that borders the, the Queensland Trough, it plunges down... 4,000 metres, and it's like diving down a giant dam wall that goes on for um, 200 kilometres, and it's completely covered with corals. It's saturated with big fish, and there's sharks everywhere. It is the most exciting place to dive, and just keeps on coming down, 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 down. And so I've been down that as deep as I possibly can on scuba, and the corals just keep going down further because of the... The water is very clear. You've named more more coral species than anyone, mm. and now, now you get to watch them slowly die. Yeah, it's horrific. It really is. Um, I used to have the best job in the world. It was a fabulous job, but now I can't find a coral reef now that I, I feel happy about. Well, it's very rarely that I do, uh, but most have gone downhill very badly in uh, in my life. 
and just recently, the last few years, they've plunged into uh, uh, something they never were before. And most coral reefs are really noisy and they're, they're, they're full of action, they're full of life, things happening all the time, everywhere. It's very hard to concentrate on anything because so much is happening. Now, for most of it, it's quiet and it's boring. We've had now with 2023 uh, major widespread coral bleaching episodes. Uh, I, I remember that. I mean, that that's three and five years. That's that's like one almost. We're almost getting to annual bleaching levels. I remember doing a story for the ABC when I was freelancing quite a few years ago, um, looking at some of the modelling uh, out of some of the United States government agencies, suggesting that reefs were going to start bleaching annually uh, around 2030, 2040. And at that point, you kind of thought that you you know you got a little bit of time. It, it may be that that's coming around a little bit quicker. The reef is already different than it would have been when I was a backpacker diving on it. And it, it's also different to it was when seven or eight years ago I took my kids to Heron Island. And we, we know that because of the way that it's bleached. The scientists look at the different kinds of species that you've got there and it's already changed. The heat has kind of killed off the less heat tolerant species so you've got different species there than you would have before because the, the heat has already changed what it looks like. It's already a changed sort of system. And yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got areas that have died off and are trying desperately to recover. The mountain birds, when they land, uh, that was very significant for us coastal people when you would go and hunt and gather at a particular time. And um, our people knew around October to May, um, especially when there weren't particular fish to go and hunt in the estuaries and that the sharks were too savage and we let the sharks have their breeding time and so that they can carry on that ecosystem in um, and out around our great water and see, I suppose, sovereign beings. My husband and I had a great experience of swimming with a large milby or large saltwater turtle who would have been over 200 years old. Mm. And just swimming with him for two hours and seeing how the rest of the um, the little ecosystem, the little families and pods of fish and that swim around him and just give him the grace and the respect that he deserves as an old turtle was it's just short of amazing. And then, um, you know, my husband was able to articulate that in a painting and it was exactly of what we um, we witnessed and we experienced on snorkeling together um, and it's just something that is just so it's a blessing every time we do go in the depths of the Great Barrier Reef and to see it one day um, demise is not something that our people um, would you know have in a storyline or send mm. a song line because the reef is so sacred and significant to us and we know that we are in great danger as the first nations people if something as significant as nyamur uh, or yerbing uh if that starts to deplete then our ecosystems and our ability to um breed inland on these wetlands as well fingerlings of barramundi of all of our crustaceans in that because the reef acts as a bigger lung, set of lungs than the mangroves. So the mangroves are on our coal, uh, coastal estuaries and our seagrass is very important. 
for our turtles and our dugongs to come and breed. Uh, we've seen the depletion of this happen and occur around the southern Great Barrier Reef because of industry and the um, dredging of the Gladstone Harbour. Um, this has in turn, um, you know, it's had devastating effects for us in our clans. Uh, when our hunters and gatherers go out and the boys have seen that the livers on the turtles um, are not healthy and that affects us and our ability to then sustain this traditional law and custom which has kept the reef and all the existing islands, estuaries and that alive for over millennia. You've been listening to Lost and Found this week, snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef. Producers are Mira Abergillies and Lisa DeVissi, technical production by Matthew Crawford. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.